this morning, we are continuing um, in the book of Acts, and we are going to read, um, starting in Acts chapter 2, we're going to read one verses 1 through 13. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, please uh, turn with me there. Uh, and I also want you to um, kind of bookmark Romans chapter 8. So if you know where Romans is at the end of Acts, Romans is the next chapter over, right? Just go one over. Paul, uh, his magnum opus to the church in Rome, uh, Romans 8. And we'll come in back and forth through there because there's, there's, there's a little bit about the spirit-filled life in that section. And that's kind of what we're tackling today. So first and foremost, before we do anything, I'm going to recap where we are from the past few weeks that we've been doing this. We read through chapter 1 in its entirety of the book of Acts. And in the first week, we learned about the ascension. We learned about the authorship of the book, right? We learned that the mission is to go forth and to teach the gospel, to, to create disciples. Um, and Jesus very specifically says that you will be my witness, first in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then all the ends of the earth, right? And that is basically the theme that carries through the entirety of the book of Acts and is kind of the theme that is going on today in the same time. And then what we learn is after Jesus ascended into heaven, uh, that the disciples got together and they dedicated themselves to prayer. So they came together in one accord, it says, one accord, which means that they were all of the same heart of the same mind. One accord is a key aspect to what we're about to, to go into next, because when you are in one accord, there's no strife, right? There's no uh, grievances aired between them. And if we know anything about the disciples, even during the Last Supper, they had arguments over who was the greater of the disciple. So for them to be together in one heart and one mind, one accord, and not be arguing about the words of Jesus or who's the greatest or theologically what is being said is very impressive. So they were together in one place, one accord, and they were praying. And then last week we learned that they chose Matthias to be the replacement for Judas. He was the 12th disciple, right? He was the new 12th disciple because God had ordained that position and Judas had basically uh, evicted himself from the position. So they prayed, and they casted lots, and they used the Holy Spirit in a way that was kind of an Old Testament way of the Holy Spirit. They prayed, they casted lots, and it was chosen that Matthias would be the 12th disciple. Uh, and we even learned a little bit from Pastor Mitchell about how in another book that's not canon, meaning it's not part of the Bible, it talks about how Matthias was a martyr who gave his life for the cause, right? Um, and so while we don't hear his name mentioned much in the rest of the book of Acts, or really at all after this point, we still know that he is a disciple, an apostle that was appointed by, by God. And so this morning, what I want to do before we do anything else, I want to read the first five verses of chapter two together. So if you will stand with me, I like this exercise. I like us getting up, getting down, you know, all that kind of stuff, getting in to the word. All right, <laughs> let's do this together. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Acts chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. We're going to cover 1 through 13, but we're going to read 1 through 4 together. So it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
Dear Lord, we just thank you that we can come here together this morning in one place, hopefully in one accord. And as we study uh, your word and we get deeper into it, that you will give us the utterances that we need to take your message out this morning. And we just pray, Lord, as we read through Acts 2 and we see how these disciples gather together with one heart and with one mind and how the Holy Spirit filled them in a new covenant, a new era, that we will also usher in that presence as well, Lord. In Jesus' holy name, amen. You guys may be seated and we will continue from here. So uh, this, I think... I was really excited uh, that I was the one to get to preach this message. Uh, we kind of picked out the first couple chapters and how we wanted to read it. Uh, so for the last four weeks, I have known that I'm going to be preaching this section. And um, it was exciting, and then it was also a, a bit uh, anxiety-inducing as well. <laughs> because this is the big moment in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit comes in. This is not a small thing. This is a huge huge deal. Uh, and you don't want to take it the wrong direction. You don't want to maybe uh, downplay one part of it because this is all huge. And as that got closer and closer, I started realizing like, oh gosh, like I've got to be the one to really like bring this in. So it was excitement and fear and excitement and fear, but I am again excited to be preaching this and bringing this to you. So this morning, uh, I want us to, to talk about the Spirit and its arrival. And the reason why I want to talk about the Spirit's arrival is because in this miraculous event that happens, as we will read as it unfolds, uh, something else happens. The Spirit arrives, and then after the Spirit arrives, a miracle happens. There's no way to, to cloud it. It's a miraculous event. They start speaking in tongues and other languages that people can understand, right? That's miraculous. And sometimes we cloud those two together. We think that the Spirit equals tongues, right? Or we think that tongues equals the Spirit. And sometimes we miss the point. We miss the arrival because there's only four verses there. We kind of miss the impact of the arrival of the Holy Spirit altogether. And I want us to really focus on that. We'll talk about tongues too, <laughs> but, but I really want us to focus mostly on the arrival, right? And so let's start here in, in verse 1. And we're just going to go through this verse by verse and make sure that we, we're all on the same page here. So it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Does anybody know what Pentecost is? Anyone? Okay, good. That's a good start. All right, so Pentecost um, is basically a, a, a holy day. It's a set-aside holy day. Uh, it comes about 50 days after the last feast of Passover, or in this case, about seven weeks after what we know as Easter, right? Jesus ascended and then Basically, we have that time period. There's 10 days between Jesus' ascension and what is Pentecost. And what's interesting about Pentecost is it's one of three, and I say three because there's several holy days, but there's one of three days where it's a pilgrimage day, meaning that people would travel to Jerusalem for this day, for this holiday. So it's not just one that you observed in your town, right? Uh, later on, it'll say that devout men were dwelling in Jerusalem, right? So these people have come to Jerusalem from all different nations to be here for this exact purpose. And this is key because this plays into the first miracle. So on the day of Pentecost, we know that Jesus is about to do a work on a specific day, right? And it says they were all together in one place. And what we learned last week 
Uh, it says in verse 15, I think, of, of chapter 1, that there was 120 in one place. So this isn't just 12 apostles and some women anymore. This is 12 apostles, some women, and all the other disciples who collectively have not run off at this point. They're all still in Jerusalem. So there's 120 people gathered in one place. And it says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So now we know something a little bit more. It says there's a house. It comes from a place in the word house, or it comes from a Greek word oikos, which basically means that it is a home. So they are not in a temple. And I just want to get that out there. They are not in a church. They are not in the temple. They are in a home. And they're praying. They've dedicated themselves to prayer. One place, one mind, all 120. And suddenly there comes from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. So what we're going to see first, and I want you kind of, if you're going to make some notes or something, this is what we're going to see. The Spirit arrives in an impactful way, right? It doesn't arrive in this subtle way. It comes suddenly. Uh, and in this particular case, it comes in the form of fire. It comes in the form of wind. Two things that were both described beforehand, something that we would see. Uh, John 3.8, Jesus was talking, and he was talking about how he needed to be born again. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know when it, when it comes or where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born in the Spirit, right? Everyone who is born again in the Spirit is like the wind. Uh, the best example I can think of this is uh, most of you have probably witnessed a hurricane in this room, right? You've probably been through one or two of those. And you can see the effects of the wind. You can see the trees blowing. You can see things falling down, this mighty rush, this mighty gust, right, that's blowing everything away. But you can't see the wind itself, right? And that's what Luke uses to describe the first part of the arrival of the Holy Spirit, a mighty rushing wind, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, which means it is not a rushing wind, but it's something like it. There's no way to describe it. It's something other. It's spiritual. So it comes in like a mighty rushing wind, and it fills the entire house. So imagine being in this room right here. Let's say there's 120 of us all in this room, and all of a sudden, hurricane gust winds just start blowing everything around, right? Can you imagine that? How intense that would be. Uh, this moment where just everything, all the paper, your Bible's like blowing everywhere. Uh, things would be falling over, I would imagine. So it's important to get this idea in your head that, that there was a, this force that just came upon them, like a mighty rushing wind, like a hurricane in a house. And then it fills the entire house where they're sitting. And then the second part of this is in verse 3. It says, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So then after the wind has blown, now divided tongues as of fire. I, I want to get this. There's metaphors in here. It's not wind. It's like a wind. It's as of fire. It's not actual fire. It's something completely uh, different. But the only way to describe it in our visual mentality to try to rationalize what's happening is to use these terminologies. So divided tongues as of fire appears on them and rests on them. And then it, it spreads throughout the entire house. So uh, Matthew Henry, the, the great Puritan theologian, described it as a, a candle. If you look at a candle, it has a flame, right? And that flame, um, coincidentally, sort of looks like a tongue, right? When you look at that, when you look at it, you can kind of see, like, that looks like a tongue. So imagine these small flames appearing 
over each person, over each person's heart, right? And this is symbolic because if we know anything about the temple, specifically in the Old Testament, the temple rests, the fire would rest, the cloud would rest on top of that place. So what's happening, first and foremost, they're in a house. They're not in the temple, right? The Spirit comes, but it doesn't come to rest on the temple. Rather, it comes to rest on humanity. Here it is. This is the temple. The Spirit is resting here. So it's saying that this is the temple going forth, right? And this is the, the main point that we have to get without anything else. The Spirit comes to us. It was given to us to rest with us, to be baptized with us, to work as a refiner's fire, to purify us so that it can do its work through us. In, uh, one, in, in Acts 1, verse 8, I'll read this again. You don't have to turn to it. It's just right there. Jesus says before he's ascended, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. Jesus cautioned them. He, he, he told them to wait in Jerusalem for this moment here because he knew that they couldn't do it without the spirit fire that burns inside of them, right? There's, there's this task they're given, the same task that we're given, which is to communicate and to share the gospel, but without the spirit fire, there's no way we can do it. We'll cower in fear every time. What we'll see later in Acts is right after this spirit comes and after they've spoken on all these languages, then Peter gets up and delivers a message, and then the message then turns into basically a, a sermon, and then the sermon continues, and then 3,000 people end up being baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, right? And then they are added to that number, just in one moment. So first and foremost, the Spirit comes, and it comes with a force. It comes with this purifying force. And it's essential. Malachi 3.2 says, for he is like a refiner's fire. Refiner's fire is the one that purifies, right? If we knew anything about John the Baptist, he said that he was not worthy to baptize the person after him. He wasn't worthy to, to even touch his sandals, right? But the person who came after him would baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That was the key word. So this is the living embodiment of those promises from the Old Testament and the New. It literally fire is coming down and purifying our hearts. I was trying to think of, I think a lot of times in Christian, in Christian world, we think that the Holy Spirit arrived here, but it didn't. It was, it's always existed. If we know anything about the Trinity, it's always been, right? From Genesis 1, 2 on, it's always existed. It's always moved. You can look at, like, for instance, when we were reading the prophets, right? The word of the Lord came to Haggai, right? Or it came to Ezekiel. That's the Holy Spirit moving on that person, uh, the same with, like, Daniel or with David or even the burning bush. There's the Holy Spirit moving in a way. But what's happening here is that it's no longer picking and choosing individuals. It's being freely given to all who believe in Christ. It's the barrier of entry to Christianity. When you have decided to pick up your cross and follow Jesus, you are inviting the Holy Spirit to come inside of you. You're inviting to come inside of you to burn you with that refiner's fire, to sift you, and sift through you, and then work through you. And so now it's no longer this distant thing that just lives in the existence. It's now here in this temple from here. So then we're going to go a little further into this. So in verse 4 it says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So there it is. They've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, 
we're going to go a little further into to tongues, but again, I don't want this to overshadow the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Uh, tongues is simply a gift. It's just one gift. There are many gifts. Uh, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians both 12 and 14, Paul writes to the church in Corinth to tell them that they've been using it wrong, <laughs> right? He's basically saying, like, look, there are gifts. There are several gifts. There's the gifts of the prophet. There's the gift of the pastor. There's the gift of the teacher. There's the gift of tongues. There's the gift of interpretation. They're all gifts. Everyone is given something different, right? In this particular instance, they're given a tongue that is not their native tongue, but it's not a mantra either. It is actually a literal phonetic language that ends up being spoken and understood by everyone who's in attendance. And that is miraculous, right? And in 1 Corinthians, again, and you can look at this. This is in chapter 12 and in 14. Paul basically says that like, when we talk in the spirit, that only uplifts our spirit. And the reason why it only uplifts our spirit and not the church's spirit is because unless there's an interpretation, no one can understand it. So... Here, I don't, I don't want to get you this confused. These didn't need an interpretation because from the gate, what they are speaking is something other. It's what other people have understood, which we're going to learn right now. So first and foremost, we got this. When the Spirit comes, it comes in an impactful way, right? It doesn't just appear. It doesn't just kind of subtly appear at all. It it's literally comes and it refines you and it changes you in a way that you cannot you can't run from it. I mean, I guess you could, but why would you want to, right? And then the next part of this, in this particular passage, is the timing. The timing in which the Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit could have come at any point in time. Really, like, think about it. It could have come at any point in time after the resurrection. There's 50 days in there that it could have come. It could have come while Jesus was on the earth. He could have given them the Holy Spirit. I don't think there's any coincidence that it came at the time period of Pentecost, right? I don't think there's any coincidence that it came at the time period of Pentecost. I don't think there's any coincidence that it came after 10 days of continual prayer where 120 people were locked themselves in a room and said, we're not leaving here until we receive the promise of the Father. I don't think there's any coincidence in any of that. So to get this point, um, there's, a, there's a verse in Isaiah 30, and this may seem a little odd at first, but when we, when we get it, it'll, it'll work together. So in Isaiah 30, this is verse 18, it says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him, right? What does this mean to me in the light of Acts 2? Well, it, it's saying that God reveals himself to us. He reveals the Holy Spirit to us when it is the most impactful. When that fire will actually take hold. He waits to be gracious to us. And then it says, blessed are those who wait for him, right? So blessed are those 120 individuals who sat in a room day in and day out and prayed continuously for the promise, for the power on high. They're blessed because they were the first to receive this promise, just as we are. But at the same time, we have to, to realize that God shows himself to us at a time that is most impactful to us. I'll use myself for an example. I've lived um, the majority of my life in a Christian home, uh, gone in and out of churches. I was uh, basically said yes to the altar call when I was young and did the baptize, was baptized, everything, all of that. Right? But at the same time, 
I lived in an existence where God seemed distant to me, right? I think you can read scripture. I think you can be saved. I think you can be baptized and, and feel like God is somewhere else, right? And then I was reading the Bible and I challenged God, right? Like I was like, I don't know if this is real, right? I don't know if this is real. In my natural, rational mind, I can't rationalize any of this anymore. And so if you're not real, if you are real, if you're not real, just reveal yourself to me. And as I was reading the scriptures and praying, I found God, right? And when I found God, it, it literally altered the course of the rest of my life, right? If you read the continuation of Isaiah 30, later on near the end, it talks about how when he's revealed himself to you, basically idols will start to fall, like you'll start casting them aside, the sins and the things that are burdening you and are drawing you further away from Christ will naturally become apparent and you will have to do something about it. Um, and that's what happens. That's what that refining fire is, the Holy Spirit. Like I can remember like exactly, there, it was a day where I, I read something, I prayed, and then I had a dream and I remember it all very vividly. It was not something that was just subtle. It came like a fire and like a wind. And so this morning, as we keep going, I want you to think about that. Have you felt that fire and that wind? And if you haven't, then it's time that we start working towards that together. That's why we're here. That's why they were gathered in one place. So not one of them would receive the fire, but so all 120 would receive the fire and then going forward. So let's continue with verse, verse 5 here. It says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each of one was hearing them speak in his own language. So this is kind of all part of the timing part of this, right? God has chosen this time of Pentecost because he knew that dwelling in Jerusalem, there would be Jews. And the key word here is devout men, right? So um, first and foremost, Passover is the major pilgrimage holiday. That's the one where pretty much all, all your Jews are going to go to Jerusalem, right? And this is one of three major, but not as major as the other one. So this one is where the devout are going to come, right? So they're living and dwelling in Jerusalem. It's no coincidence that these devout men were there, right? And naturally, they hear this wind, right? They hear this wind because how, uh, how can you not hear a hurricane that's literally right down, you know, the street? Uh, I was looking into the, the, the archaeology of this, and they found houses that were literally big enough to, to hold 120 individuals within the confines of the temple square. So, like, where the temple is, it would be within earshot of that. So, here they are, dwelling in Jerusalem. They hear this wind, and, of course, they're drawn to it, right? And then they're bewildered because each one hears them speaking in his own language, the first act of God from the Holy Spirit is that he is testifying to Jesus in everyone's individual language. In verse 8 of chapter 1, it talks about how they will stay in Jerusalem, right? And then they will go to Judea, Samaria, Samaria and all of the nations, right? And in this very first act, <laughs> in this very first act of the Holy Spirit, all of that is happening. Literally, from point one, it's starting right here. It's not just talking to the Jews in the room, but it's spreading out to everyone. 
to give uh, more credence to this, let's continue reading. So in verse 7 it says, And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? Now this, in and of itself, is miraculous. Uh, Galileans, as we looked at when we studied uh, the chapter in Luke, the first beginning of Luke, uh, when we did our Bible study, uh, Galilee, and in, in specifically Bethlehem, right, which is in that sort of Galilean area, uh, was kind of considered a rural area. It's kind of a poorer area, right? Uh, it's not your city capitals. It doesn't have the influence that, like, say, something like, uh, like a New York City does, right, where there's many culturals, the cultural things going on there. Rather, it's one area, the kind of rural, kind of backwoods, it's the backwoods of, of Judea, right? We'll give it that way. So it's not exactly the place that you would expect to have masters of linguistics, right? These people are not going to suddenly like just know a bunch of languages and be able to speak in every form of language. They're going to speak what they speak, and that, that's kind of that's it, which is why he says that, are not all these men speaking Galileans? They're, they can see them. They know that they're them, and they're so bewildered by the fact that these people who are not elegant, right? They're not eloquent with their words, are not only speaking in their tongue, but are by all visual accounts, incapable of doing so. And it says in, in verse 8, and how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? And then it goes down a list. We have Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. I mean, that, that alone <laughs> is magnificent. From the gate, all of these people are speaking the mighty works of God, or what we know as the gospel. They're speaking the gospel in a language that they don't know, but everyone outside knows it. So, for instance, when I was talking about tongues, in this particular first, first instance of tongues, it's very important of when it happened, who it happened to, why it happened, and to acknowledge that it was real phonetic languages. It wasn't just uplifting their spirits, right? It was uplifting literally people who had never heard this before. They could have just come out of the gate and spoke in Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek, right? Or in the common languages of the time but then they would have missed all these people. There's people from Egypt. There's people from Rome. Rome is literally the cultural hub of humanity at this time point. If someone takes this back to Rome, it's going to spread like wildfire. And so just as the fire and the Holy Spirit of God spread within the room very quickly of 120 people, it then spreads to thousands within the matter of hours, within the matter of days. And then it says in verse 12, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they were filled with new wine. Right? So we have here, we have the, some who are amazed, they're perplexed. Literally all are amazed and perplexed, but some find it baffling. Uh, there are passages in the New Testament that talk about how uh, the, the glory of God, God's revelation, is folly to the wise. Right? Some of us who are wise, are, like for instance, I mentioned... Uh, myself, I, I, when I was reading the scriptures, I was trying to read it from a rational standpoint. I was trying to rationalize things that shouldn't be rationalized, right? And so it's folly to people who are wise. We, we try to make sense 
of things, when in reality the Spirit is something that's supernatural and we can't even make sense of it. That's why the best we've got is like a wind or as fire, because all we can think of is this is the closest thing that we've got. And so while there's some who scoff and say that they're filled with new wine, there are others that are so perplexed and so beautifully intrigued that they can't look away. So we have this thing, right? We have the wind and the fire and the Spirit comes and it comes and purifies us, right? And he sends his spirit on the right time. And then what we have to remember is in the verse 4, it says that the spirit gave them utterance. So the words that they're saying are not their own. I want to I re, just really reiterate that. It is not their own words. It is God and the Holy Spirit working through them in his first divine act. Let's look at Romans 8, which I told you to bookmark because this, um, this is solid. So we're going to look at Romans 8, and I'm going to bounce around in this and come back. In verse 26, that's what we're going to start with. I'm going to read 26 and 27. And it says, uh, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray, for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So when we receive the Spirit, and we're working with the Spirit, not running against the Spirit, the Spirit is what intercedes on our behalf. Because we are not capable of articulating the right thing to say whether it be in another language, whether it be in this language here, we are incapable of, of doing that. And so we have to really rely on the Spirit. We have to rely on that because the Spirit is what intercedes for us. It's what gives us the words, the utterances, the things that we need to say. This first miracle in Acts wouldn't have been able to happen if they received the Spirit, and then they were like, mm, we reject this. You know what I mean? Like, if they just decided, no, we're not going to allow God to take over us. But I do think the reason why they allowed that to happen is because they had spent 10 days praying, right? They had spent 10 days literally praying. I think they made one decision that whole entire time, but they were praying in a room gathered together, right? And so they were already, their hearts were already ready for this first, first act. And so then we have to ask the question, okay, if the Spirit intercedes and if the Spirit comes and is given to us and is the barrier of entry into being baptized, like we baptized in the Spirit, if we have this gift, well, what is the purpose of the gift? What is the purpose of it? Why do we have it? And uh, it's very, very simple. <laughs> There's really no way to, to do it, uh, to look at it any other way than to read this first. The whole entire point of the Holy Spirit is to advance the gospel. That's it. There's really nothing else. I mean, every miraculous event is an opportunity to advance the gospel. Think about it. When, like, when someone is raised from the dead, that's miraculous. I, that will change minds, right? When someone is healed, that is miraculous. That will change hearts and minds. When people, people speak in languages that they do not know, and people are able to hear it, that will change hearts and minds. So the whole point of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are to embrace the gospel and to share the gospel, right? So what is this first act? Well, it goes out. They speak in other tongues. The Spirit gives them utterance. And then all these devout individuals who are there listening hear what is the mighty works of God in their own language. That's key. 
it witnesses to Jesus, which again goes back to verse 8 of chapter 1. You will be my witness, right? He doesn't say how you will do it. <laughs> That's irrelevant to you, right? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witness. And so in this day and age, we are to be his witness as well with the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's the only way that we can be a witness. We were not physically there to see Jesus die and be resurrected. What we have to rely on is this, the Spirit and the Word that's given us the utterance and the things to say. And so we rely on the Spirit. The Spirit drives us and thrives in us. So I want to continue reading a little bit from Romans again. Because I think this, this Romans 8 really does sum up what is like the life in the spirit it really it really kind of sums up what it means to be spirit-led to be baptized in the spirit so let's read um from verse one and um i'm gonna read just i'm gonna keep reading for a little bit because this is good this is solid so in eight verse one it says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Pause it right there, right? The law of the spirit. It's the new covenant that has just been ushered in in this book of Acts. Has set us free from the law of sin and death, right? The law that we had before was a path to death. There was no way that we could be holy enough to achieve it. And Jesus, this miraculous human who lived and died and then ended up resurrecting and being seated at the right hand of God, right? Part God, part man, <laughs> has given us the spirit which has set us free from that law. So first and foremost, that is the blessing to us, that we are set free from the curse of the law. But then in verse 3, it goes on a little further. It says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, that may, for some of you, that may be a bit much to take in, uh, but it's, it, it's basically saying to us that when we live according to the spirit, when the spirit has really taken hold of us and we live in that, that spirit-led mindset, we know, we're assured that Jesus gave his life for us. We're assured of that. And we know that we have salvation and a path to life eternal. And so death has lost its sting, just as we sang in that song this morning, right? Death is no longer relevant to us. It comes and it goes, but we know that there's something greater, right? And so this is a recap of the gospel, but we're, this is what the life in the spirit is like. So I imagine... This is how I imagine it, because it doesn't say the exact words that they uttered in Acts 2, but I imagine it sounds something like this, right? Because all the devout men who were in Jerusalem at that time would have been very, very aware of the law, 
They would have been very aware of what it meant to live by the law and to sin and death and to atone for sins, right? And Jesus flips the script on all of that and says, no, you can live eternally through me, right? So I would imagine that message being translated in their language immediately for the first time would be amazing to hear, right? These guys that you would not expect saying these things. Let's continue reading in verse 9. It says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your immortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So it's saying here, look, if we are in the Spirit, if Christ is really living and breathing in you, you are given that assurance, that Spirit-filled life. The Holy Spirit is there. That refiner's fire is doing a work in you. And it is your duty. It is, your, it is the Great Commission. It is the last thing that Jesus told to us is that we have to share this with others, right? It's no coincidence that the first act of the Holy Spirit gives these individuals the utterance in which they cannot do themselves to share this message. This message is, like I said, it's folly to the wise. It makes no sense. It's baffling that someone would give their son to die for us so that we would have eternal, that's just crazy. Think about it. Like, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even give my son up for anything. <laughs> you know, like, I just wouldn't. That's a crazy sacrifice. It's crazy, ridiculous love to love someone that you would sacrifice your child for them. And not only that, the way we see the Trinity, it's not only his child, it's part of him. It's literally a part of him. God gave himself so that we could, we, these wretched sinners, could be and with him. Like, we don't deserve it. We just don't. And, and it's amazing. And to people who are wise, they don't wrap their head around it. They just think God is like this angry God who, like, you know, like wants to torture us or make us feel bad because they read the law and they don't understand what we've been redeemed from. When we were given the, the law, we were given the atonements, it was, it was our duty to go to the place, the temple, and have someone atone for our sins, and maybe we would be in God's good graces. But now we have a barrier of entry, and it's Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That fire is symbolic of the old way, but it's doing a work in our lives today. And so um, this morning, it really comes down mostly, mostly to this, is that we are asked to, to pick up our cross and to walk with God, right? And that's what the disciples did. They dedicated themselves later, as you'll see, to the disciples and the apostles' teachings, to, to prayer. Uh, as we go further into Acts, we'll, we'll discover this. So they devoted their lives to Christ, and they gave up everything they had. And... Um, here in, in, in 12 through 17 of, of Romans 8, Paul says something very, very pro profound at the end. So I'm going to read this to you and kind of let that be from here. So it says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit 
that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So it's saying that we have been adopted, right? We've been adopted by God. That we are heirs of the kingdom of God, the promises of God. And that is so profound. But there's this caveat right here. It says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Right? So what we're asking and what happens when the Holy Spirit comes in us is the Holy Spirit moves in ways that are outside of our control. And when it's outside of our control, it puts us in situations that are outside of our control as well. We'll find ourselves doing things that we couldn't have done on our own but because of that, we're putting ourselves in a perilous situation. Most all of the apostles end up dying, right? Martyrs' deaths, right? Uh, being beheaded, being stoned to death, being crucified upside down, uh, being boiled in oil uh, was, was probably a horrendous one and still not completely dying. There, these, things, these things happen. And so it's interesting when I read Acts 2, because we live in a world where we think that this message should just be accepted by everyone. And we have to understand that it's not accepted by everyone. That most people find this to be folly. They find it to be confusing and confounding. And rather than accepting acceptance, we should accept persecution. In fact, we should relish in our sufferings with Christ. I'm not telling you to go outside uh, and do anything crazy or stupid. I'm just saying that we are intended to suffer with Jesus. That was our, that's what picking up our cross means. It's a sacrifice to let the Holy Spirit use us in ways that are outside of ourselves. Those 120, when they received the Holy Spirit and they started preaching that message and telling of the word, they also offered themselves up for the eventual death or sacrifice that came with it. You'll notice at the very end of verse 13, that there is a group of people who mocked them and thought that they were filled with new wine, right? This miraculous event happens, but there's still a multitude of people who think that they're drunk, right? That they're crazy or that they're not accepted in society. And so Acts 2, in this first portion, while it's glorious and it's amazing and it ushers in this new covenant, this new assurance that we have life eternal and we have life with God and we have this refining fire that runs with us in the spirit. It also is assuring us that we will suffer with Christ as well. In some way, shape, or form, we will be persecuted for it. People will disown us or they'll think differently of us or down of us, think less of us. Maybe an agnostic or an atheist will think you're an idiot for uh, believing in something that you can't rationalize, right? And that's okay. That's the key. That's okay, because we are called to do that. It's all through God's grace, right? We are those who that he has predestined. He has chosen us to do this, to fulfill this command, and we are intended to take it out. Uh, Galatians 2.20, I refer to it all the time. It's become my, like, go-to thing, right? It's like, what is it? Like, I have been crucified with Christ, right? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then the key part in the life that I live in the flesh I now live by faith in the Son who loved me and gave himself for me. That is profoundly beautiful. It is saying that we live this life here. This exists. This body exists 
but there is a Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. It is a new temple. It is a refining fire. It is doing a work in us. And when this body passes, that other body will continue on. And I cannot think of any greater news than to know that we have been redeemed in Christ Jesus, right? Our sins have been atoned for. And so here in chapter 2, we realize that the Spirit has come, has ushered in this new presence. It's come at the right time. For these individuals, it comes at the right time for us, right? And it has one purpose, and that is to advance the gospel. There's a short amount of time between then and when Jesus returns. And they've given, God did something crazy. He gave us the responsibility to share that message, to take it out, so that other people, our brothers and sisters in Christ, would be able to not suffer in eternity, but rather be given eternal life with us. And so this morning, as we reflect on these passages, I just ask everyone to really think about the Holy Spirit and how it moves in your life. Has it called you? Has it asked you to do something that seems maybe a bit crazy, right? Has it asked you to put yourself on the line or put yourself aside, to die a little bit to yourself so that you can do something for God? And if it has, are you doing it? Let's take a moment to pray. Dear Lord, I give you the utmost thanks for the sacrifice that you give for being the suffering servant, for being the one who has come and given himself for us so that we can be adopted and be heirs of your kingdom, Lord. I give you thanks that your spirit helps us in our weakness and gives us the utterance of the things to say, the things to do. And I pray that everyone in this room will yield to the spirit as they go out this week, as they go out for the rest of the day, that they will be in tune with the Spirit, and the Spirit will give them and guide them in the path in which they should go. And I pray, Lord, that everyone in this room will be of one accord, of one heart and one mind, that will have perfect peace, knowing that you have given yourself for us, and that your refining fire will continue to do a work in all of us, so that we may advance your will. In Jesus' holy name, amen.